This past week, I began reading John Perkins' new book titled One Blood. Uh, John Perkins spent the last six decades of his life teaching and working for, teaching about and working for reconciliation in God's church. He grew up in Mississippi, was born in the 30s, but left in 1947 after his older brother was killed by a white police officer outside the black entrance to the cinema in his hometown. And as he moved, he harbored an intense hatred toward white people. Then, at the age of 27, he met Jesus when he was in Southern California through actually the uh, children's program that his son had begun attending with a friend at a church there. And after Jesus worked in his heart and changed his life, he moved back to Mississippi in 1960 to begin working for reconciliation in his home state. Ten years later, in 1970, he was arrested and beaten by white police officers while accompanying some students at a protest. But he continued his work. He didn't stop. He's now 87 years old, and he published this book in April to be what he says are his last words to the church on this topic that he has dedicated his life to, on reconciliation. And it's really worth reading. I would commend it to all of you. At the end of his introduction in the book, he cites John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, and where Jesus prays that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And Perkins returns to this prayer later in the book. It's clear that this prayer that Jesus prays for unity animates John Perkins' lifetime work toward reconciliation. And it makes sense, because at its heart, the ministry of reconciliation is all about unity. It's all about bringing things together. It's about, as we've defined it, the restoration of relationship. It's the exchange of hostility between two or more parties for peace, so that what was previously divided can now be unified or united. And it's the recovery of this relationship, this unity that defines reconciliation across every line of human difference that has been exploited by sin and marred by injustice, including lines of race or ethnicity, of sex or gender, of class, of culture. Reconciliation, we've been in a series on it for a few weeks now, is the means by which the original unity of creation is being restored by God's power. This unity was destroyed by sin as it preyed upon difference and created division, rivalry, envy, hostility, and violence that has marked and marred human history. In the past two weeks, we've considered two key New Testament texts, Colossians 1 and 2 Corinthians 5, which tell us that in Christ, God is restoring that unity that he created at the beginning and that sin undermined. Those texts both speak of God's restoration work as new creation through reconciliation by the cross of Jesus. This was anticipated as we read in Isaiah 19 in the Old Testament when Assyria and Egypt and Israel, these former enemies, were now united or will be united in the worship of the one true God. But now that unification is happening on a grand scale in Christ, through the cross, and by his Spirit. And this is the future toward which all of God's creation is headed. 
Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 10, that this was always God's will and purpose for the fullness of time. To unite, he says, all things in Christ. Now, I want to make two observations. First, the church is to be the place where this reconciling and unifying work of God is foreshadowed and demonstrated to the world. I know a lot of you children here like movies. And before you watch a movie, you watch what's called a trailer this preview of what the movie will be. And it's helpful in some ways to think about the church as the trailer for the feature film of God's new creation. That's what's coming. But we're the foretaste, we're the anticipation, we're the glimpse right now that people can see and, 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 and understand more about what's coming. This is why Jesus prayed so deeply for unity in John 17. This is to happen in the church. And it means, secondly, that the church is the place where hostility and enmity, those are big words, kids, but those mean uh, essentially anger between people, division between people. It's where those things are overcome so that reconciliation, peace, and loving communion, which is unity, will prevail. And this is our text and our task for this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 where Paul shows us that at its very core, the church is the place where the divided are united and where hostility is exchanged for peace. Paul's main assertion, if you want to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, his main assertion is that the Gentiles, who were once far off, excluded from the people of God and the covenants and the promise, this is verses 11 and 12, have now been brought near. Verse 13 is the key here. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that continues that thought in verse 19, if you'll skip down. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The Gentiles are like wandering refugees who are now given a new passport and a new home. Everything has changed. In the Messiah, by faith, they are now fully belonging to God alongside those Jews who are in the Messiah now by faith. In chapter 3, verse 6, if you have your Bible open, drop down to there. Paul says this mystery, and he says this is a mystery that God revealed to me through, Revel through Revelation. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Gentiles and Jews have been reconciled. That's what this text asserts. They are now unified in the church, in the Messiah. And the rest of the bits of this text, which we'll deal with, address two questions and answer two questions for us about this. First of all, how did this reconciliation or new unity, new union come about? How did it happen? And then secondly, what are the consequences of this new union? So we want to see how the text answers these questions, because if we can see how through the work of God, the, the dividing wall and the division, the difference and the hostility was dropped between Jew and Gentile, then perhaps we might understand how that kind of same work can impact us today across lines of difference that create hostility and division. And also, if we can understand the consequence of this union, what it produces, then I trust that that will be motivation for us in the ongoing work of reconciliation. 
So first, how does Jesus bring about this new union between Jew and Gentile? This is verses 14 through 18. And the key word of this section is peace. Peace. Jesus is our peace, verse 14. Jesus makes peace, verse 15. Jesus preaches peace to those who are far off, that is the Gentiles, and to those who are near, that is the Jews. That's verse 17. It permeates four times it's used in these verses. The biblical understanding of peace is not just the absence of conflict that is sustained by not being in the same place. You think about sibling conflict, and one of the ways that we solve that in our home is we send children to their own rooms, because if they're at least not interacting, there won't be any conflict. But that's not the biblical picture of peace, kids or adults. The biblical idea of peace is of restored union, of harmony in relationship, of playing toy with toys together in the living room and enjoying one another and the differences and different perspectives that we bring together. That's what peace is. Miroslav Volf says peace is communion between former enemies. It's not just coexistence. And if we look at those words in verse 19 that Paul uses to describe the Gentiles, he calls them fellow citizens, members of the same household, of God's household. That means a deep and real union, a community, a community of oneness in the Messiah. Jesus, we're told in verse 14, has made us both one. And in verse 15, in himself, he has made one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Peace is the theme. Peace means Jew and Gentile together in union, in loving relationship. So how then does Jesus bring about this peace? The answer that this text gives is quite simple and yet profound, and we'll spend most of our time here He removes this barrier between Jew and Gentile, which is referred to in verse 14 as the dividing wall of hostility. Further explained in verse 15 is the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He removes this through the cross. Through the cross. Let me say something first about this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. The law is holy and righteous and good. Paul affirms that in Romans 7. It was given to God's people in order that they might be his holy and special possession so that through them God could bless all the nations of the earth. That was its purpose. That through them the light of God's glory might shine to all the world. That's Deuteronomy 4. The other nations would look on and say, what great nation is there that has such a God like this and such laws like this that they could live in this way? That's what it was for. It was that they might become the light to the nations that they were meant to be. But Israel's use of the law, especially in the time of Paul, by the time of the first first century, became primarily to emphasize their own distinctiveness over and against all who were not Jews. Through a focus on circumcision and food laws, keeping the law became more about separating Israel from her neighbors than about honoring God and calling them to love their neighbors. This emphasis upon distinction and separation inevitably was taken hold of by the power of sin that deeply affected Israel as it affected all of the Gentile nations, and it twisted that and made it bring about a sense of superiority. So much so that Jews in Paul's day, in the time of the New Testament, actually prayed a daily prayer, I thank you, God, that you did not make me a Gentile. Now, you can imagine if you were a Gentile back in this world and living around a group of Jews, and you heard them saying this prayer every day, how that might make you feel. 
and what kind of anger and hatred and vengeance that would produce in your own heart toward the Jews. So this law that was holy and good and righteous became the instrument whereby hostility was created between Jew and Gentile, enmity and division. And it's this, Paul says, that was removed by the cross. The cross is the agent, is the, is the action, the divine action, that restores the possibility of union in Jesus. Verse 13, if you'll go back with me to verse 13, they have been brought near how? By the blood of Christ. Verse 14, that he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 16, it's through the cross that God has reconciled us both to himself in one body, thereby killing the hostility. Very particularly in this first century context, the death of Jesus at the cross rendered the Jewish law inoperative. It removed that law from, being oper- from, being oper- from operating and, and ruling over the way in which the Jews lived their life, and therefore from becoming a barrier between Jew and Gentile. In the cross, Christ dies, and Paul says in Romans 7, we die as well to the law, and we're no longer slaves to it. Its purposes have been overcome, and so it's set aside. And by that setting aside at the cross, a new way is opened up for the hostility that existed because of that law between Jew and Gentile to be wiped away, to be defeated, in order for them to come back together, to enable a communion now between former enemies. This union between Jew and Gentile, we'll jump to the present in just a moment, this union between Jew and Gentile is accomplished not through human effort or human strength or human ideas or ingenuity. It's not accomplished through better education or better health care or better policies. And yes, these things are important, certainly in our present context, but they can never produce the beautiful union that God intended for all of us in creation. They just can't because they can't change the heart. But what can is the cross. We need divine power. And Paul articulates in Ephesians 2 this divine power through Jesus who is our peace, exercised at the cross that removes the barrier between Jew and Gentile, eliminating the reasons for hostility and enabling true communion and union to happen now between them. So that's the logic within the text. Let me just bring it to the present for a moment. What does this passage mean for us on whom the Christian ministry of reconciliation rests, our topic and theme for this summer? Because, of course, we are no longer dealing primarily with the question of hostility between Jew and Gentile that was evoked by the Jewish law. The hostilities that we encounter are different, and they are legion. There is hostility between husband and wife. Think for a moment of how many marriages cite as the reason for their dissolution irreconcilable differences between brother and sister, between parent and child, between black and white and Asian and Latino, between rich and poor, between young and old, between male and female. These hostilities are pervasive in our experience. And they, of course, sadly, have infiltrated the church of God. We are culturally divided. We are racially and ethnically divided. We are divided along lines of class. We're divided along lines of theology in different ways. We're divided. 
Michael Emerson and Christian Smith wrote an excellent book published in 2000 covering the topic of evangelical religion and the problem, they say, of race in America. And the book is appropriately but sadly entitled Divided by Faith. The beautiful picture of this one new humanity in Christ in Ephesians 2 is a far cry from our experience in the present day in the church. There's a tremendous amount of hostility. So what do we do? There are, of course, many responses to this question, and I hope we'll consider many of those in the weeks to come. But in light of this text in particular this morning, I want to say that we look to the crucified God. We look to the crucified God because it's the cross where the Son of God, God himself in the person of the Son, dies. It's in the cross that the power is there, that the power is contained to remove hostility from our hearts. Consider again John Perkins, this man who had experienced tremendous violence and whose family had experienced violence. This man and countless others like him chose to lay down his thirst for vengeance and revenge. The hostility between him as a black man and the white people of his home state was broken down first in his own heart by the love of God, the radical love of God that he encountered in the cross of Jesus. Because God was not counting his own sin against him or against anyone. This is what the cross signifies so powerfully. God's arms on the cross are outstretched in an embrace, a posture of embrace toward all humanity. Then how could Perkins harbor anger and hatred toward his brother even his brother who perpetrated such evil against him. The cross is the defining moment in God's self-revelation. Here is God giving himself, absorbing wrongdoing and evil in himself, on himself, in order, and this is so important, in order that he might embrace his enemies, that is, humanity, that he loves. The cross reflects God's radical commitment to embrace Humanity, the rebellious humanity that is perpetrating violence against him and against his son. And here God is choosing the path of peace at tremendous cost to himself. Here God is offering forgiveness even while the violence is still ongoing against him. This is incredibly radical. It's unusual. It's otherworldly. It is, in fact, supernatural. And it's this act of God at the cross that defines and transforms and shapes us so that we might become the social agents who are capable of pursuing genuine reconciliation across lines of hostility and difference. Because we always will live in a world of enmity where the trail of tears never stops, where bitterness and hostility brew up within us as as a right of nature, as a, as, a, as a response. And yet, this act of God is, called, is the act that literally transforms our hearts. In other words, hostility, the hostility that exists between spouses, between siblings, between races, between classes, between genders, that hostility has no home in the shadow of the cross of Jesus. 
Consider for a moment one of the great leaders on the Ministry of Reconciliation in the church in the latter half of the 20th century, a man named Tom Skinner. Skinner grew up a poor, in, in a poor setting in Harlem and made his way to become the leader of a Harlem gang known as the Har- Harlem Lords. He was committed to violence, he was bloodthirsty, and he harbored in his own heart an intense hatred toward all religions, and especially toward white people, as he would say. But Skinner met Jesus, and he was transformed from a violent gang leader into a leading minister of reconciliation, who led the way with others like John Perkins in the ministry of reconciliation until his premature death by cancer in 1994 at the age of 52. Skinner spoke to thousands of youth at at the uh, Urbana Conference in, in 1970, declaring the ministry of reconciliation. It's the cross that has the power to change the human heart, the cross that has the power to enable us to set aside hostility, hostility which in our nature is, of course, natural, which grows up within us, but it's the cross that enables us to put it to rest in order that we might become agents of reconciliation, in order that we might walk into this vision that God gives us in Ephesians 2, of a new humanity in peace and forgiveness. At least the cross is the possibility for the end of hostility between us in a very radical way, so that the way to peace and reconciliation and union is open. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that we don't tell the truth about pain. It doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to injustice. It doesn't mean that we're not honest about real hurts that others have perpetrated against us. In fact, in the church, we are called to do all of those things, to be clear and transparent and honest. But it does mean that we forgo revenge. It means that we work hard at not erecting barriers, be they physical or more likely the barriers that we put up in our hearts that cut people off, especially people who have wounded us. We forgo entrenching ourselves in hostility. Why? Because in the shadow of the cross, that hostility has no place. Why? Because in the cross, God's love and forgiveness is offered to all human beings. And if God has said that he will not hold hostility against our enemies, then as those who follow him, we cannot hold hostility or harbor hostility against them either. It's this radical place that frees us and transforms us on the inside, that enables this new kind of humanity to grow up and develop. The way this text ends and the way I'll end is with the consequences of the union that Paul is describing. And what he says is, is incredibly radical. Children, I'd ask you the question if you're, if you're still here. Where do we see God? Where do we see God? The amazing thing is that in the reconciled family of this new humanity, Paul says in the last three verses, of our text, or four verses, is that this community of Jew and Gentile 
of all those former enemies coming together in the radical love of God under the banner of the cross, this is the place where God has chosen to dwell. We see God when we look at the church. We see God when we look at the people of God who are unified in the Spirit of God, who are sharing life together, former, formerly at odds with one another, but now unioned together in Christ. Verse 21, that they're being joined together and grown into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's this community under the shadow of the cross that brings together former enemies and brings them and makes them brother and sister. It's in that community that God has chosen to dwell. Not the community of the Jewish Christians over there and the Gentile Christians over there or the white Christians over there and the Asian Christians over there and the black Christians over there. No, it's in the community of this this mosaic of brick by brick by brick of different and different and different being brought together embodying that creation principle of diversity and unity, creating harmony, when that is seen, that's where God dwells. It's incredibly beautiful and powerful. We're the trailer. We're the preview for all that God is going to do in bringing his world together. It's only possible by the cross I'd just close personally by asking you, where is there hostility hostility in your heart this morning? And to whom is that hostility directed? It could be a family member. It could be a spouse. It could be a group of people, a whole race. It could be toward the wealthy. I would encourage you to bring that hostility under the shadow of the cross and recognize that there God has enabled it to be released, laid down, let go of, so that you might be a man, a woman, a child of this radical vision of reconciliation in a world that desperately, desperately needs the church to be that. That's our privilege, that's our calling, and that's our possibility by the power of God.